Okay, this morning we are going to be looking at part one of the day of crucifixion. This is the most impactful, most important day in all of human history. Uh, this is the purpose and reason why Jesus Christ became flesh. Why, I mean, why the Word became flesh and Jesus was born was to be the Savior of those whom God had purposed to save before the foundation of the world. So this is the day. This is... Um, uh, Jesus has spent the evening prior to today, first in, with his disciples at the Lord's table and explaining to them all that was going to transpire and all that was, was going to happen to them after he had, uh, was resurrected and ascended back to heaven and the Holy Spirit came upon them. So he's given them a lot of instruction. Then he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and uh, be burdened about all the events of the crucifixion and then he was arrested in the night and taken before the Sanhedrin, before the chief priest, and was condemned to death by them. And that's what we covered last week. So this morning, I mean, to, this morning we're going to look at the very day of the crucifixion, and we're going to spend most of today, the most of today's session on his uh, being sentenced by Pilate and his appearance before Pilate and all the things that go with that. And then next week, we'll, the aspect of being on the cross itself. So in chapter 27, we're going to be in chapter 18 of John primarily today, but we're going to be going back and forth to the other Gospels. In chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him up to Pilate, the governor. So this is early in the morning on Friday of crucifixion week. Um, this is early in the morning after they after he'd been up all night and had been appearing before the chief priest in the early early morning hours of the night. And part of that reason for that was to avoid the crowds. The Pharisees and the, the scribes didn't know how the people were going to respond to them arresting Jesus. And so part of the plan was to do it at night and to have him brought before them during the, evening, the early morning hours of the night before um, the people would have been congregating around and they would have the possibility of the people turning against them uh, because of what they were doing. So um, that's where we're at. So now we're going before Pilate. So if you would, in, back in John chapter 18... We're going to start in verse 28. It says, Then they led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas unto, into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter to the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Now, just think about that. Here you've got the chief priest and the Jewish religious leaders conniving to murder Jesus, the Son of God, and they're worried about being defiled by going into a Gentile courtroom because it was a, they were going to eat the Passover. So their endeavor to be lawful, their endeavor to be religious, their endeavor to be right with God, Jehovah God, the God of the Mosaic Covenant, their endeavor to be right with God shows their hypocrisy while all the time they're conniving to kill this innocent man, which they even if they didn't even if they didn't believe he was the son of God, they're putting to death an, e, an innocent man, 
in their minds um, that claimed to be the Son of God and prove that he was, but in the midst of that, it just shows the hypocrisy of religion. And we have to be careful. We can be the same way in many times trying to appear right with God, appear doing the right things, but in our hearts we are doing things that are not right with God. I just want to point out that hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders at this point, and you'll see it throughout this whole, this whole uh, day of the cross and the crucifixion, as, long as, as well as you've seen it all the way through the ministry of Christ. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, about their position here a little bit later. Okay, so here they come, they bring Jesus to Pilate, and so the first charges they bring here in verse 29, Pilate therefore went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring? So Pilate goes outside because they've come to the praetorium. And so now they, Pilate goes outside to meet them to figure out what's going on. Why have they requested uh, his appearance or why they requested this man being brought before him? And he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. In other words... We wouldn't have took the time and effort to bring this man to you if he wasn't worthy of being punished. He's an evildoer. And so, and so the idea is we brought him because he is guilty of some evil doing. And so Pilate just turns to him and says, Therefore to them, take him yourself and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. So Pilate's thinking they bring this man to accuse him of something. And he says, here, you've got the freedom. You've got your own law. You take him and judge him according to your law and punish him accordingly. But according to the Roman law over the Jews, the Roman jurisdiction over the, the Jews could not put anyone to death. Now, under the Jewish law, they could, but they were under Roman law. They were under Roman control. And the Roman leaders would not allow the Jews to put anyone to death because that was something that the Romans would have to do. And they all, they're the only ones that could do that. Since they were ruling over Israel, they were the rulers over Israel, only the Romans could put someone to death. They propped up governments under the Roman generals or the Roman uh, Caesar or, or leaders, but the ones they propped up that were Jews could not execute people to death. And so that's why they brought him to Pilate into the Roman court. It's because they wanted Jesus to be put to death. They'd already sentenced him to death. And so they are accusing him of things that would bring that. So when they first bring him to Pilate, they didn't specify why he should be put to death. They just specified he was an evildoer and we're coming to you so that he can be put to death. And that's what their desire was. Okay. And it says in verse 32 that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying about what kind of death he was about to die. So he'd already prophesied and told the disciples he was going to be put to death by the Jews through the Romans. Okay, so if you go back to uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 23, because the first charge was not sufficient, then they began to accuse him of a more heinous crime to the Romans. It says in verse 2 of chapter 23 of Luke that they began to accuse him saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. So here they began to portray this idea that Jesus is going to lead a revolt a rebellion against Rome. He's already told the people not to pay taxes to Rome, which is a lie. Remember? Jesus said, pay it unto Caesar what's Caesar's, and pay unto the Lord what's the Lord's. 
So he didn't do that, but they're lying about that as long as they're lying about many other things. And so here they are saying to him, uh, to, to Pilate, no, he's not just an evildoer. He's trying to overthrow Rome and put himself in as a king. He claims to be Christ. What's the word, for, what's the word Christ mean? The anointed one. In other words, the, the anointed one, the promised one, the Jews had been looking for, he claims to be that one. And the one that is anointed is to be king over Israel. That's what he claims to be. He claims to be that one that was prophesied in the Old Testament, that one that was the anointed one, that one that was the Messiah that would be king reigning on David's throne. And so they accuse him before Pilate of being one that is going to impose this kingship now. He's going to have to overthrow Rome to do that. And so he is building up the, the people to overcome Rome and overthrow Rome, and therefore he needs to be put to death because he is rebellious. He is an insurrectionist. He is trying to overthrow the Roman government. So that is the, that is the, the, the charge against Jesus before Pilate is first he's an evildoer, and then that he is an insurrectionist, one that is trying to rebel against Rome. Now, um, so... Pilate turns to Jesus in, in Luke chapter 23 there, and he says, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you said. And so Jesus says, Yes. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, Yes. And so Pilate then says, he, he says to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man. And they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. But when Pilate heard it, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. So here, the first indication, Pilate is smart enough here to understand that he does not have enough evidence or enough of. Of, of accusations for them to put him to death. So he's looking for a way out. So he hears that he is from Galilee, and he says, oh, if he's from Galilee, then I need to send him to the king over Galilee, which is Herod, who happens to be in town right now, so I'll just send him over to Herod and let Herod take care of this problem. So he, Pilate is already trying to find a way out of this dilemma he's in, of the Jews trying to get him to put someone to death that he doesn't believe at this point is worthy of death. Okay? Now, who is Herod? Which, is, which one of the Herods is this Herod? Okay, so when Jesus was born, who was king over Judah? Herod the Great. Herod the Great began 27 B.C. or something... He, he reigned quite a while. He built, he built the temple. He rebuilt Solomon's temple. He was the one that was Herod the Great. He was king over all of Judea. Okay? Now, he, he had sons. He had several sons that ruled in his place, but he broke up the, the, the rulership into different compartments. Now, this is Herod and Antipas. is the same Herod that married his brother's wife. His brother's name was Philip. He was another Herod, another son of Herod the Great. And so Herod Antipas married his brother's wife, and John the Baptist confronted him about that, remember? And so he had John the Baptist put to death. He had him beheaded because of his daughter connived him into that. You know the story about the wife coming because she was 
upset with John the Baptist for accusing him, them of being adulterous relationship. And so John the, uh, Herod and Antipas put John the Baptist to death because of that. So this is the Herod that, is, that Jesus is being sent to, the same one. Now he's king of Galilee and the area of Perea and Galilee, but he is in Jerusalem at the time. And so Pilate uses this opportunity to send Jesus to Herod, hoping that Herod would deal with this and that he wouldn't have to. Okay? So that's what happens there. And it says in verse 8 of Luke chapter 23, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. So Herod is thinking, I have an opportunity to see a miracle worker perform miracles. And therefore, he was welcoming this idea. Now, if you go back to Matthew, 20, Matthew 14, when it gives the explanation that John the Baptist was beheaded by this same Herod, the first couple of verses are interesting there uh, in chapter 14 uh, of Matthew. In verse 1, it says, At that time, Herod, this same Herod, the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and this is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So then he goes on to explain that he had already put John the Baptist to death. He had already beheaded him. He had already done this. So what's happened is Herod is getting word about this miracle worker named Jesus that's going around the countryside doing all these signs and miracles and wonders, and he makes the assumption out of his guilt, probably, that this is John the Baptist resurrected, and now he's going around doing all these miracles, and now Herod may be in jeopardy. If, if this is John the Baptist resurrected, he may want to get revenge on him. But anyway, so he's, he's thinking in his own mind that maybe this is John the Baptist resurrected, and he's because of all the signs and miracles and wonders that he hears about Jesus doing, and now... Because Jesus is being brought to him, he has the opportunity to see him maybe do some miracles face to face. And so he comes to him for that. Now, why do you think, it says here, he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. So why do you think Jesus never responded to Herod? Herod, Herod just wanted to see a show. Okay. Like it wasn't really. Herod, Herod really, he probably really wasn't interested in and the, the charges or the legalities, he was more interested in just seeing what Jesus would do and how he would respond. Uh, this may not be the answer you're looking for, but yeah, you know, Jesus didn't do certain miracles until a certain point because it wasn't time yet, and it wasn't time for miracles. It was past that time. Yeah, Jesus was not giving any more signs. If you remember when the Jews rejected Jesus, he said no more signs will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Resurrection. Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, and then he was brought out of the belly of the whale. And so when he was comparing that, the sign of Jonah was, was given at the, at the resurrection of Lazarus. It will be given at the resurrection of Christ, and it will be given finally at the resurrection of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation during the tribulation when the two witnesses are raised up in front of the whole Jewish people and everyone's going to see that and that's the last sign of Jonah that they will begin to believe in that is a sign of resurrection the power of God that Jesus is who he said he was was it prophesied that he opened not his mouth yes it was prophesied that he would open not his mouth to his accusers right but here if you look at the situation Herod is not really in this 
He, Jesus was sent there by Pilate to get him out of Pilate's dilemma. And then Herod is brought there and he, 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 he begins to question him. And Jesus says nothing. At the same time Jesus is saying nothing, it says in verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes are standing there accusing him vehemently. So the whole time that Jesus has come to see, be brought before Herod, the, Jew, the Jewish leaders, the priests, they all followed. And they're standing in the background yelling accusations at him in a very violent, vehement way. And Jesus is saying nothing. And Herod is sitting there. And so Herod takes the side of the mob. And so then it says that Herod and his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So because Jesus wasn't going to do anything, he wasn't going to say anything, he was being silent before the accuser, silent before Herod, and not responding to anything. Herod had enough of that. He showed contempt on them and scorned him, mocked him, and sent him back with a robe, uh, mocking him as a king. Okay? And that's, that's the extent of Herod's involvement here. I think the real reason why Jesus didn't say anything to Herod like he did to Pilate he did respond to Pilate. He didn't respond to Herod at all because John the Baptist had approached Herod and talked to Herod. And how did he respond to John the Baptist? He had nothing to do with it. So if he didn't respond to the forerunner of Christ in a right way, why would he respond to Christ in the same way? So Jesus had nothing to say there because it wasn't part of the purpose and plan of what God was doing at this time other than to expose again the reality of the Jews and their uh, murderous plot of accusations against him. So now Jesus is sent back to Pilate. Okay, so let's go back to... Uh, okay, John chapter 18. I have to bear with me just a little bit because I'm trying to make sure I get the chronology where you can understand what's going on during this morning session when he is before Pilate. Okay, so he is sent back to Pilate. In verse 33, Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? In other words, are you really the king of the Jews? So he is following up on what had been, he had asked him before, he sent him to Herod, but now he's come back and now he is following up on this subject of Jesus really being the king of the Jews. So he says, are you really the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Why are you asking me that? From what perspective are you asking me that? Is it something that you have discerned or something that you have seen in me, something about me that you've said, or is it just what you've been hearing others say about me? What is your point? And Pilate answered, I am not a Jew. Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you up to me. What have you done? In other words, why do they hate you so much? Why are they doing this? If you are the king of the Jews, why are they not accepting you? Why are you not admired? Why are you not being encouraged if you are the true king of the Jews? What's going on here? Okay? So, uh, if we look at that, again, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You, are, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, 
For this I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So when he asked him, are you really a king? He said, yes. And then he says, my kingdom, Jesus says, my kingdom is not this world. What did Jesus mean by that? Because many people use this to say that Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It is not a literal kingdom. So what is Jesus saying here when he says, my kingdom is not of this world? Well, the first clue you have is that when Jesus says, for this I was born. Now, Jesus didn't have to be born to be king of kings and lord of lords. He's king of the universe, right? He didn't have to become flesh to be king of the universe. He had to become flesh to become king of the earth. Okay, go to Luke chapter 1. When the angel is appearing to Mary and giving her instruction about what's going on or what's fixing to happen to her. In verse 30 of Luke chapter 1, it says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary, you're going to conceive and bear a child. This child, which is the Word of God, is going to become flesh in you, and you're going to name him Jesus. And he is going to sit on his father's throne David's throne, and he's going to have a kingdom over that throne that will last forever. So the kingdom that he is talking to, to Pilate about is not him being king of, of the universe. It's being king of the Jews and reigning on David's throne on the earth. Okay? Now go back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel you have two passages that deal with the Gentile kingdoms followed up by a Jewish kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, first of all, in Daniel chapter 2. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there was a great statue. The, the head of that statue was the head of gold. And then you had arms uh, and breast of brass. Then you had thighs of silver. And then the legs and the feet of iron and clay. So he had his dream, and the interpretation of that dream was that there was going to be a, king, a series of kingdoms in the Gentile world. This began with Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. When he, when he killed or took King Zedekiah into prison, and Zedekiah was the last king of Israel. And from that point on, the Gentiles had ruled over Israel with no Israel king. And Jesus told the the Jews in Matthew chapter, I mean Luke chapter 24, that the time of the Gentile kingdoms would, would last until, um, that the Jews would be, dis, would be under, trodden down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is, is over. And the time of the Gentiles will be over when Christ comes back to be the king of Israel. So when he comes back at the end of the tribulation to set up the kingdom for Israel, that's when the time of the Gentiles is ended, when he destroys the last king that is in this lineage of the kingdoms of the Gentiles. But in this, in this passage, in this picture here of this dream, it says in verse 34 of chapter 2 of Daniel that 
you, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet, in iron, its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So here you have a picture of this statue and this stone coming down from heaven as a stone that was not cut out with hands. It comes from heaven. So this kingdom is not of this earth. It is not man-made. It is made by God. It is delivered by God. And this, this Messiah or this king that's coming is going to come and crush the Gentile kingdoms that are ruling over Jerusalem from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the time of the Antichrist. It's going to crush them. And it's going to destroy them. And the Gentiles will never have a kingdom again. But this kingdom will grow, become a great mountain. And so the interpretation of this is found there in, um, in verse 44, as Daniel is giving the interpretation of the, the dream that, that Nebuchadnezzar had. It says in verse 44, in, those day, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. So he will set up a kingdom. It's not that Jesus is ruling over a kingdom here. He's going to set up a kingdom. <laughs> that will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Insomuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So turn to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Now Daniel has another vision, and his vision is of the same context the same message, it's just a different. And in Daniel's vision, he has four beasts that represent the times of the Gentiles. And so he says in verse 13, this vision, he had four different beasts come up out of the, out of the, the, the sea, or they, they come up among the nations, and these are representing the four Gentile kingdoms. He says in verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. The interpretation is in verse 25. He says, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, talking about the Antichrist, the last king of the Gentiles. And he will intend to make the alterations in times and in law, and they will be given to his hand for a time, a time, and a half a time, which is three and a half years. The last three and a half years of the tribulation will be given to the Antichrist to rule the earth. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms of the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the, of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Speaking of this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, that his kingdom is not of this time, it's not from brought about by his people, it's not a conquering kingdom at this time, but it is an earthly kingdom, it is the Davidic kingdom, and it will come about, but not now. So my kingdom is not of this time, it's not of this realm, it's not of this earth at this point, and it's not, it's not manufactured by the people of the earth, it's a kingdom that comes down from heaven, and the one that's coming down will be the Son of Man. So when Jesus is talking to uh, Pilate here, he is talking about a future kingdom that he truly is the king of the Jews. And so if he's king of the Jews, that has to mean that there has to be a kingdom of the Jewish people that he is to be king over. 
Any questions about that? Because a lot of people get confused because they say, well, Jesus is just Lord of a spiritual kingdom, and we're part of that spiritual kingdom. We're not Jews. We're part of the church. Jesus is coming back to sit on David's throne, and David's throne is an earthly throne, and he'll come back at that time. That's what Peter was talking about in Acts um, when he's talking about Jesus being the son of David. In Acts chapter 2, verse 34, it says, For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. So here he said that to the Jews, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know that for certain that God had made him both Lord and Christ, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's what the writer of the book of Hebrews is also saying in the first chapter of Hebrews when he's explaining that the, the superiority of Christ over the Mosaic covenant and the Mosaic law and that Jesus was foreordained to be the, the kingdom, the king. He says in, in chapter 1 of Hebrews Verse 8 says, but of, the son of, but of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness and above thy companions. And then he goes down there in verse 13. He says, To, to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. So when Jesus ascended back to heaven, he is at the right hand of the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father until the time is ready for the end of the Gentile kingdoms to come about. And then Jesus, the one who was established to be the king of the Jews, before Pilate, this Jesus will come again and he will destroy the Antichrist and his armies and he will set up that kingdom. So he's going to sit at the right hand of the Father until the time is right for him to come back to earth. In, in Revelation 19, when you see the king of kings... And the Lord of Lords coming in all His glory. He's coming to destroy the Antichrist, destroy the Gentile nations, and to set up the kingdom of the Jews, which will be an everlasting kingdom. So how is that kingdom an everlasting kingdom? Now we know that the, 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 that the original part of that kingdom lasts for a thousand years. It's the millennial kingdom. In, in Revelation 20, he, he rules for a thousand years on this earth. When he comes back, he sets up his kingdom. He rules for a thousand years on this earth as head of the Jewish nation, and the Jewish nation is head of all the nations. So the king of Jews will be the king of the whole world. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed from the pit, and he comes and deceives the, the, the young population to overthrow this king of kings this king of kings that is ruled in perfect harmony, perfect peace, perfect prosperity. You've had a perfect kingdom, but the hearts of men are still wicked and evil. And when Satan is released from the pit, he deceives this young generation of, of people that are not born again, and they try to overthrow the king. At the end of the thousand years, Revelation 20, and then God sends fire down from heaven and destroys them, consumes them. Their souls are cast into hell, and they die on the spot. And then... Jesus delivers up the kingdom in heaven. The great white throne judgment takes place. This heaven and earth, this heaven and earth are dissolved. And there's the new heaven and new earth. And this kingdom, this everlasting kingdom, is transferred to eternal earth. And there will always be the king of kings and lord of lords ruling over 
the throne in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, and Jesus will be king on that throne forever and ever in eternity. So everything that happens in the millennial kingdom will be transferred to the eternal state in the new heaven and new earth, and that means that this will be in an everlasting dominion, an everlasting kingdom that's transferred from this earth to the new earth. So everything fits in harmony with scriptures to allow for all the things that Jesus said. And so he says there to, uh, to Pilate there, when he speaks about the truth there, he's talking about the truth of everything that he has prophesied, everything he has told is going to come true exactly. He said, I am a king, for this I have been born, for this I have come to the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone is of the truth, hears my voice. Everyone who's going to be in that eternal kingdom hears my voice and becomes part of my relationship related to me because the Spirit of God has caused them to be born again and the only way they can hear His voice is to be born of the Spirit and therefore all that hear my voice and respond to me will be in that kingdom. So we all are going to be in that kingdom. And that's what it says in, in Revelation 20 when it says after the tribulation of those days and it comes to an end, he says in in verse 4, I saw thrones and they set upon them and judgment was given to them. Uh, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their foreheads and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So everyone that is part of the first resurrection are the righteous. Everyone that's part of the second resurrection are the unrighteous. The first resurrection occurs prior to the thousand-year millennial kingdom. The second resurrection occurs at the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And these are resurrected to go before the great white throne judgment and to be cast into the lake of fire. So the first resurrection is the righteous. The second resurrection is the unrighteous. The first resurrection go into the eternal kingdom. The second resurrection go into the eternal lake of fire. So it's very distinct, very clear. All that hear my voice... The truth is, they become a part of my eternal, everlasting kingdom. So he's king of kings, of his whole creation, of all of those chosen of God, but he's specifically the king on the throne of David, and he will sit on David's throne for a thousand years, and then that throne will be transferred to the eternal throne, eternal kingdom, in the eternal earth. Any questions? Nick. So I think the, the straightforward reading the scripture verifies exactly what you're saying, and I think solid hermeneutics verify exactly what you're saying, but as you know, half the Christian world doesn't believe in what you just said. They have their own hermeneutic that they have developed that takes Christ off of David's throne. He won't rule in the millennial. Don't even believe that. And it's just like, how do you get to there? Okay. Yeah, the question is, how did we get from the point where this is clear in Scripture that there's going to be a kingdom on earth to a point where the half the church believes that there's just a spiritual kingdom, there's not a real kingdom. So what happened was when the Jews were destroyed in 70 AD and they were dispersed, we, they didn't have the access to the New Testament writings. All they had was the Old Testament. And so it seemed to be that the early church began to question the reality of Jesus coming back and, and establishing the Jews again because they were destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, the Jews were scattered, they weren't even a people anymore. 
And so that began to be a topic of conversation. And so when the church became the Roman Catholic Church, or the Roman Church under Constantine, then that thought made sense. We'll make the church be the new Israel, and therefore it is not a literal kingdom on earth. Now you understand the prophecy in the Old Testament to mean that it became a spiritual kingdom with the destruction of Jerusalem. And now Jesus is over a spiritual kingdom, and we're part of that new covenant of the, of the spirit. So the misunderstanding of the new covenant and the misunderstanding of the church, that we were the new Israel, and therefore it had to be a spiritual kingdom, not a literal kingdom, was propagated by the Catholic church. And when the reformers came along, they didn't change the mindset that we are part of the new covenant. They didn't change the mindset that we are the new Israel. They just changed the doctrine of salvation by grace alone stood of by works. But they kept the other tenets of the, new, of the covenant. And we talked about the idea of the, the, the covenant, the new covenant, and why we have such an issue with that and why it causes such a problem is because in Jeremiah 31, when it was promised to Israel that the Mosaic covenant would not be the last covenant, there would be another covenant. And he said there will be a new covenant. Well, that word new is not a title. It is a reference to the fact that there's going to be an additional covenant coming. And so when the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to Jewish believers that are debating whether to go back under the old Mosaic covenant, he is writing and explaining, and he quotes from Jeremiah saying there was always going to be another covenant, and the covenant was going to be a different kind of covenant. It was going to be the covenant of the blood of Christ. And so the basis of that future covenant with Israel will be the blood of Christ. And so... Because it was recorded in Hebrews, the church began to, to say that we're under that covenant. Well, if you read in the Old Testament, it says the new covenant in Jeremiah is for the house of Israel. And the only way the church can be a part of that covenant is for us to be the house of Israel. And so that when, we, when we adopted that we're under the new covenant, then that gave license for us to say that we're the new Israel. So I would say when Jesus said, this is a new covenant in my blood, he's not, he's not speaking of the covenant of Jeremiah. He's speaking about the eternal covenant that God, the Trinity of God, brought in or initiated an eternal covenant where they would take the roles of, the, of the, the Trinity and the Word would become flesh and take the role of, the, of becoming a man and die and that God would raise Jesus from the dead and perform what He purposed to perform to bring in the saints. And that is the, the eternal covenant. And that's why in... Hebrews chapter 12, when he talks about the new covenant of his blood, and he compares it to the, he compares it to Abel, not to Moses. And the reason he does that is because he's talking about a different kind of righteousness. So if you just want to look at that just real quickly while we're talking about it, and we'll get back to John in just a second here. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, when he's talking about this um, understanding that you have come to the Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriad of angels, and to the assembly, the general assembly. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. And the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to this prickled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So the new covenant he's talking about here is not the new covenant to Israel. It has nothing to do with Abraham. It has nothing to do with the people of Israel. It has to do with the eternal covenant that God made with all those he purposed to save. So the church of the, new, the, church of the, 
the church that's enrolled in heaven, the, the, uh, the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, he's talking about all believers that are brought under the eternal covenant, the new covenant's blood, which was different than the blood of Abel. So what was different about the blood of Abel? So when Jesus made, when God made the promise in the garden to, when he was making that declaration to the serpent, and he was talking about the fact that, that there was going to be enmity between your seed and thy seed, and, and so the point was making that, that there would be a seed that would come from the woman, and this seed would provide righteousness, and so Adam called Eve the mother of the living, even though God said you're dead, because Adam understood that through his seed would come a provision of righteousness. And so Eve assumed that Abel was that righteous one that was going to provide righteousness for all people, because he was righteous and Cain was not righteous. And so she made that assumption. And then, he, then, then Abel was killed. And so then in chapter 5 of Genesis, uh, no, in chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 25, it says, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son named Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring or another seed in place of Abel. So what he's saying there, that the, even though that in Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. So Abel obtained the testimony that he was righteous because he believed God and it was counted for him for righteousness, not because he could give that righteousness to anyone else. You understand? So the right, the, when he's talking in Hebrews about the, the new covenant of his blood, which is better than the blood of Abel, Abel's sacrifice or Abel's death, even though he was righteous because he had been born again and saved and declared righteous, his righteousness could not be conveyed to anyone else. It took the righteousness of the Son of God, the second Adam, the seed of, of Abraham. This righteous man as the Son of God, shedding His blood, provided life for all those who were born of God. Whereas the blood of Abel couldn't provide righteousness for anyone. Even though Abel was righteous, his blood, or he being the seed that began this journey, was not the eternal seed, was not Abraham's seed. So you make it, does that make sense? So the eternal covenant is the, the blood of Christ that provides salvation to all. It is not the Jeremiah covenant that we're under, we're under the new covenant. So when we go out and preach the gospel, we're not telling people to become Jews. We're not telling people to become part of the Jewish state and enter into the covenants that were given to Moses, I mean to Abraham. We're talking to people about entering into Christ, the eternal sacrifice, the eternal covenant of his blood. Now, it's true that the future, the future covenant that Jesus talks about for, for, for Israel in Romans chapter 11 when he's talking about after the church has been taken up, or after the church is, is finished, and then he says, all Israel will be saved. In verse 26, the deliverer will come from Zion. So when is that? When he comes back to earth. And when he comes back to earth, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he's going to enter into that future covenant with Israel when he returns to earth and sets up the kingdom, and he takes away their sins. So the blood that Jesus spilled on the cross is the basis for the 
the new covenant in Jeremiah when he takes away the sins of the people of Israel based on the blood shed of Jesus Christ, not on the Mosaic covenant. That's what he's saying. So at that time, the new covenant, his blood will be applied to Israel. The same is applied to us now. And that everyone that is righteous, everyone that is saved, is saved by the blood of Christ, not by uh, any other means. Okay, a little diversion, but hopefully that helps understand some. All right, go back to John. Okay, here, here again is Pilate's dilemma. Um, go to Matthew 27, and then we'll come right back to John. But in Matthew 27, or we come... So at this point in this conversation... He says, now at the feast, in verse 15 of Matthew 27, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed, this is the feast of the Passover, that's what they're celebrating, right? All the people come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's going to die on Passover. So at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the multitude any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. When therefore they were gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Christ. In other words, you want me to release to you the one who claims to be the king of the Jews, the Messiah, or you want me to release to you this terrible criminal Barabbas? And his thinking, I'm sure, is that nobody's going to want me to release Barabbas. He's notorious, a, a terrible person. He's done terrible damage to the Jewish people. Surely they will not want Barabbas released. They'll want Jesus. So this is the second attempt for him to alleviate himself from this dilemma he's got of dealing with Jesus. And so he comes up with this idea to offer them to release uh, Jesus or Barabbas and thinking that they will obviously choose Jesus who has not harmed anyone. He says in verse 4, 18, for they knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. So he knew that this was all contrived, that the Jews hated Jesus because they were envious. Now when did this, when, how did this develop to this point? How did it develop this point that the Pharisees hated Jesus so much? And why did it develop this way? Okay, so it started with John the Baptist. So what made, it, what made them so mad and angry with John the Baptist? They had a dilemma with John the Baptist because the people understood that John the Baptist was a prophet. And so the people acclaimed John the Baptist. They, they thought he was wonderful. He was out there preaching a, a, a message of repentance, uh, preparing the way for the Messiah coming. He was out there baptizing them in the River Jordan, and the people were coming to him in throngs and throngs. And so the Pharisees went out there, and he condemned them. He said, what are you doing here? You're not coming here desiring to be baptized into repentance. You don't believe that you need repentance. And so he condemned the Pharisees, setting the stage for Jesus. Now, when Jesus came on the scene and started his ministry, what was the first message that he preached? Sermon on the, the Sermon on the Mount? And what did he say in the Sermon on the Mount? Your righteousness has to be greater than the Pharisees. So that's what he said. He says there... Uh, In Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So he condemned them right off the bat that they were unrighteous. He said, your righteous has to be greater than their righteous. Your, your righteous has to be greater than their righteous because they're not righteous. And so he started off on the very first sermon that they heard after hearing John the Baptist preaching about him coming and hearing John the Baptist condemn them for not wanting to become repentant sinners. Then Jesus says, you're not righteous. You're sinners. The, right, the Pharisees had been teaching and believing that they were keepers of the law, and if you did what the Pharisees said, you were righteous. And Jesus said, no, they're not righteous. And then this continued in this progression, this progression of hatred and this progression of, of, of conflict between them and the Pharisees, between Jesus and the Pharisees, until it reached that point in Matthew 23 when Jesus goes through that whole litany of... of Woes to the Pharisees, the seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on and on. Woe to you, blind guides who swears by the temple. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He goes through that whole litany in chapter 23 of condemning them because they were supposed to be leading the people to righteousness and they were leading them to hell. And they hated him for that. And so they were ready to have him killed any way possible. And they come to the point, finally, of, of carrying out their hatred in a public way in front of Pilate. And so, so Pilate had said uh, this, um, he says in, in, um, in John chapter 18, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish that I would release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now you go back to Luke's passage and it gets more detail about that. But first go, hold your place there. First go to, to one, one point there he makes in Matthew, Matthew's gospel in chapter 27 again about him knowing that he was innocent. After he said, for he knew that, they, that because of envy they had delivered him up, in verse 18 of chapter 27 of Matthew. And then it says in verse 19, and while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So here he knew that he had done nothing guilty, nothing of, of any being guilty. And then his wife sends him a note saying, do not do this. This is a righteous man, and I've had a dream. Whether, wherever, wherever she got the dream, I don't know, but she had got a dream, and she was troubled because the dream indicated that he was going to put to death a righteous man, and she said, don't do that. So go to Luke, and we'll finish up with that Luke passage in chapter 23. <clears throat> and this is... Pilate's final words about the condition and the guilt of Jesus. In verse 14, he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. So Pilate's assertion... Herod's recommendation, he is not worthy of being put to death. 
There's nothing about anything that they're bringing accusations that is worthy of death. And so he says, I will therefore punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release one of them to them the feast one prisoner, but they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. And Pilate, warning, in verse 20, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, what, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. Okay, so then he gives in to the mob. But in Matthew's passage is a tremendous statement that they say that is still going on today. Pilate said in verse 22 of Matthew 27, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. So you can imagine why when Peter stands up and preaches at Pentecost, and those Jews that were there and said, let his blood be on our hands. And those Jews that were at Pentecost that heard Peter's message and were pierced to the heart, meaning that their heart was opened by the Spirit of God to understand and believe the truth, they said, whoa, what can we do? What can we do? His blood is on our hands. What can we do? So the Jewish nation is suffering under the consequences of that indictment even till today and will until Jesus comes back and they then they cry out blessed be the name who comes in the son blessed hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the lord till they call upon the name of Jesus in Romans chapter 10 13 whosoever shall call upon the name of the lord will be saved these Jews in the tribulation time will call upon the name of the lord and he will return but he will not return until they do that Okay, next week we will pick up with the actual crucifixion and all of its intensity and all of its ramifications.